0: you thanks for tuning into the waiting list podcast i'm long long i'm daniel and i'm jacqueline and we are three watch friends with a healthy obsession for watches
1: so sit back and relax with us while we chat with collectors industry giants and share some good vibes hey guys quite a few years ago i was invited to an event in the puli hotel in shanghai i was in that mode i think like all collectors are in that some part you know in their journey in that mode where basically if there's a watch event that you're invited to you just go to it you don't even know why but you just keep going to watch event after watch event after watch event and I can't actually remember much of this actual event except that there was a local watch media blogger um with I would say a moderate following here in China uh that thought you know that he would bring it on to himself to give his honest opinion on the brand that had invited us there in the first place and I'm kind of paraphrasing but the gist of what he said was this brand has no future it won't go anywhere and then he looked at me and said you should tell them Daniel but he actually announced it in front of everybody and I was like "Uh, I'm not actually going to do anything like that but um, I did actually think what a dick like who who is he to say that a brand makes it or not and i remember at the time the founders of that brand acted so graciously that you know like much better that, than i would have reacted if it had been my brand because i probably would have punched the guy's lights out but um that brand was atelier wen and those co-founders were robin and wilfred and robin is our guest today do you remember that day robin
2: Yes, 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 I do. It was the, the one and only event we ever did in Shanghai, in the Puli Hotel. <laughs> really, really nice place. Also, like, uh, being organized thanks to our friend John. Uh, you now he's in New York. Uh, yeah, I, I do remember that blogger who had been recommended to me as also one of the nicest ones uh, in mainland China. So they, definitely that, that came a bit uh, as a shock, I think, on that day um but, but honestly looking back i think some of the stuff he said were maybe a bit right so so then uh moving forward we, we changed a lot of stuff in the brand so just maybe the, the way it was uh, delivered which was like somewhat abrupt um yeah but yeah i do remember that moment still well
1: well i'm so happy that five years later like uh your brand is still around and kicking strongly you know because i, I really remember that and i just feel that uh especially in the last two years your brand has got some recognition but you know especially amongst like uh the watch enthusiast uh circle so i just want to say well done and uh yeah it was great seeing that over your five, you. last five years and also seeing the brand evolve but what brought you on to actually make a chinese brand yeah
2: yeah yeah for, for, for sure uh I think it's, uh, it's a combination of many things, uh, one being my personal interest and the other one being chance. Um, so I, I've really been into Chinese watches for, for a super long time. Um, I mean, I, I've said the the official story quite a few times, but it's it's actually true and it's actually how it happened, uh, which is that when I was young, uh, I wanted to get into watches because my, my parents gave me one for like the 14th birthday. And I thought, oh, you know, if you want to be a real watch collector, you need an automatic watch or a mechanical one. And what they gave me was a quartz uh, Seiko one. Um. So, so yeah, so, so I started looking around. And one day I came back to my dad and I said, oh, I really want a Tissot. But he told me to just, like, go away because uh, he thought it was a bit unreasonable to, to buy me that at that age. So I did more research online. And that's when I... First, discovered uh, like Chinese mechanical watches on, on forums, which were a big thing back then, like you know, watch music and uh, and those kind of places. And um, I was fairly lucky because the the family would go to to China quite often. And uh, on those trips, well, basically, I would just buy some some vintage Chinese mechanical watches, which back then were super cheap. For like a hundred kwai, you, you could get like a nice Shanghai or Tianjin or other those kind of like old brands. And and yeah, just but more and more and more and more. And then by chance, one day I got to meet like a a person whose name is Li Wei, who is the head of the China Pollage Association, which is like the the local unit that that oversees the the industry uh, in mainland China. And uh, he kind of became my mentor. He took me under his wing, and and for a year when I was studying at at Peking University, uh, we just like visited a lot of like uh, artisans and watchmakers and and watch factories and and dial makers and, and whatnot, like getting a sort of comprehensive view of the, the whole ecosystem. And, and that's really where, I mean, obviously, I, I love the watches. I think back then I already had a lot of them. That's really there that I saw, oh, okay, like besides being great products, like meeting the people kind of like exposed me to, to another dimension of that, which is that also those people are like super passionate. And, and for some of them, like that that job of theirs that they're doing is, is their life. So I thought that that's very interesting and especially more so since well, back back in the UK, back in Europe and France, uh, I would tell my, my friends about that and they would really be like, oh, no, you know, like we, we all know that in China is, is some sweatshops and, and some kids and it's very well known that they are paid one USD per day. And and so, so you had this kind of clash between like sort of like the stereotypes and, and what they could see and, and maybe the the reality on the ground. So I thought, mm, yeah, maybe that, that would be interesting to make a brand that could really like sort of yeah, showcase that that aspect of, of China, like the, the passion, uh, the culture, the, the richness. Um, and my co-founder, I mean, I should still mention him, like Wilfried, he, he's also a French guy, but he's born and raised in Hong Kong. Lived pretty much all his life in in either mainland China or Hong Kong, uh, and he feels very dearly also about Chinese culture. And he had kind of the the same realization as me. I mean, not in the realm of watches, but more like in the cultural heritage bit, where he would see that people would be like, "Oh, China is just like a, a place for for fakes or for for copycats." But he was like, "Well, no, actually, there's so much like richness to it and wealth and depth. So it's it's a shame that that people don't know about that." So so yeah, that's how it happened.
1: So a lot of people will be listening to this and just saying, just screaming out of the podcast, saying Chinese watches are shit. You know, like you say that you know it, they attracted you. What what did attract you about Chinese watches? I, I, I mean, in the first place, I think it was just like I, I didn't
2: really think about that. It was more like at the very beginning, those were the only watches I could get, uh, and, and then like as I started buying more of them, I kind of, I don't know, got exposed to like all the, the intricacies and the quirks, especially with the vintage ones. You had like so many factories and so many subbrands back then. And it was a bit like a, I don't know, like a treasure quest, you know, I was always looking for like, oh, that rare model or that special ones. And it was very interesting because a lot of them are actually tied to the history of the country. So there's this, yeah, there's really this kind of like treasure quest sort of like dimension to it when you're, you're looking for them. And and then I think as I got more, I just kind of got addicted to that. And, and then, like, all the watches I would look at were Chinese watches because that was my, my sole interest. And then, yeah, that, that led to all I said before, like meeting Mr. Lee and, and all that. So, but I think at, at the beginning, it just happened by chance. Like, who knows if my dad had bought me that that Tissot, maybe uh, I would have been so into like Swiss watches or, or whatnot. Um, yeah.
1: Okay. So how did you I mean, you're called Robin. The other guy is called Wilfred. Like, uh, why is it called Wen? Oh, it's, it's
2: for Wenhua, uh, the, the culture. So the, the idea is to explore, uh, the, the Chinese culture, like through, through, through the watches and, and why we have this Atelier one name, like, uh, which is both French and Chinese, uh, is because also we wanted a name that is maybe like a reflection of who we are and who we stand as, as a brand and as a team. Initially, we only wanted to use a Chinese word because we thought, okay, those watches are are just going to be about China. But then we thought, yeah, I mean, we were like two two French guys, and so so so, so even if we wanted to, we cannot be like fully fully Chinese. Like we're we're not Chinese, so so we wanted yeah a name that that really is like who we are as a brand. I mean, yeah, we we do like hundred percent Chinese watches. We're all about Chinese watches, but then like we're, we're two French guys doing it. I mean, now the team is bigger, but they all said that that's my was. Yeah.
3: I have a non watch related question. Um, when foreigners come to Asia, like. What are the other aspects about the culture that you guys appreciate?
2: Uh that that's a good one. Um I haven't really thought too much about it. Uh I mean, looking back at my personal experience, really the the trigger were the watches, and that actually led me to take some Chinese classes in high school. And then I had this teacher who was so into like independent Chinese cinema. So I kind of got a bit into that, like, you know, like the John Rimo, mm-hmm. uh, those kind of guys. So yeah, for four years, I was really into those things. Um, and yeah, I think watches and independent movies, were what I was looking at, um, as for okay. other foreigners, I, I don't really know. I don't okay. know, may, maybe the food, because it's quite different or okay. okay. architecture. Uh, what What do okay. you think?
3: I don't know. I mean, I'm very curious because it's like if I let's say we talk about France, like Mm -hmm. I would think about um, like, what is something about your culture that I truly appreciate? Maybe the fact that you guys actually really enjoy eating like it's not just eating to survive, but you actually it's a whole ritual and you take your time. You enjoy it, you know, so I've always wondered when I see like tourists, there's a lot of tourists in Hong Kong now. So I always think "Mm, I wonder which part of Hong Kong they appreciate. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe yeah. like how fast the taxis drive, or something. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> or or the speed of the elevators. Yeah, elevators yeah. It's like and the doors. And... I think yeah. the typical answer would be like something like yellow fever or something like that, right?
3: Yeah. <laughs> no one's yeah. gonna that. Yeah. Yeah, that was <laughs>
1: yeah. So um I believe your watch, the first watch you produced, was a Kickstarter, right? Mm-hmm. right. Yeah. So what were you trying to actually achieve? With the first watch aside from raising enough money to actually start your own watch brand um i, I think
2: there was like two stuff um the first one was really uh, i mean the, the most realistic one was like a, a proof of concept we wanted to see if there would be like room or scope for that that kind of watches because I think before us like no one really did it like I mean the I mean of course you had expensive Chinese watches but they were expensive maybe because of like the movements like with some turbulence or or complications or expensive because of the materials like made of gold or or platinum or like expensive like yeah raw stuff but not really an expensive still Chinese watch with no, nothing particular in terms of complication or whatnot so we wanted to see if indeed there's some appetite for that um the, the second thing we wanted to achieve i guess like we, we didn't really know back then like the, the whole thing until the, the kickstarter was more or less a success like was really like almost a, a sort experiment i mean till the end of the campaign like neither Wilfried nor myself had the plan of doing that full time we were just like you know, initially we like because because we both did like this year abroad in Peking University, then went back to Warwick. We were studying at Warwick in the UK. And then all our friends had graduated. We were very bored and we we're like, okay, let's think about something to do together. Then we were like, okay, we have this concept, let's do a design, and then oh, let's do a prototype. And then let's try to launch and see. But there was nothing really, like no, no so specific goal. We both thought we would go to like normal corporate job in like finance or, or consulting. And and that's that, so there was a bit of, yeah, go with the flow sort of um, dimension to it. Uh, so I would say those things like the, the proof of concept, and and then like, we didn't know, which is like, we had the prototype why not doing a Kickstarter and see.
1: So in that first watch, did you, what movement did you use?
2: Uh, a movement from Dandong, uh, uh, the, the, the big movement maker in, in Dandong. Um, it's based on like an ETA clone. So they have this like ETA clone cause SL3000. And then the one we had like had a small second at six o'clock module. And we had them modified so that there's no like ghost like position when you, you pull up the crown. And it, it was, I mean, it, it was uh, more, more accurate than their like sort of like standard movements. Um, Yeah, and we we had ordered like something like 500 movements, which for us we felt was a huge thing, but I think for them was like a drop in the water. But they were still kind enough to modify it for us. Also had some nice engravings on the rotor, and
1: yeah. Okay, so Um. yeah.
3: Sorry, because I was just thinking the first uh the first watch was made the dials made from porcelain, right? Mm-hmm. But um, I mean porcelain's hard to work with. The chances of it like cracking and not working, and there's probably a lot of wastage, right? So was this not something you guys thought about as a Kickstarter that the you would create a lot of wastage and then it might not like you might run out of money.
2: Um, not really because with the, with, with the maker, actually we had negotiated that they would deliver like, like non-broken dials. So we wouldn't pay on the attempt, but we would pay on the delivery. So actually Mm. for them, it caused a lot of wastage, especially with the blue porcelain, because we had some issue with like how the pigments would like sort of spread Mm. because you know, like the the white porcelain actually is not hard, but the blue one, Mm. like we had to add pigments like in the kind of mix and then you cook yeah. the stuff uh, yeah. but then because we have like tiny holes for like to put the applied indexes then like the pigments wouldn't spread evenly and would have like tiny black dots so for those like blue porcelain dials like i think for like the 500 not the 250 watches I made in blue they had to make like more than a thousand dials so for mm-hmm. them it was not very interesting um mm-hmm. they they didn't really want to work with us anymore uh <laughs> but for us it, it was sort of okay <laughs> yeah yeah
0: i have uh, a question uh, um, that's not really watch-related, but uh, kind of related to what you were just talking about. Um, So yeah, both of the founders, you guys are from Europe and you came to China um, or he grew up in Hong Kong and then you came to China to study um, and then you started this project together. I'm sure you have to contact a lot of different manufacturers and different um, people from different provinces. Did you ever feel like um, uncomfortable while dealing with Chinese businessmen as compared to I, mean, I don't know like European businessmen because I feel like even though I grew up in China but then I, I moved um, to North America quite young just being back in China now and seeing how people negotiate or do deals it kind of struck me and, and make me feel a little bit out of place and awkward at times because I don't feel as smooth as them so I was just wondering if you felt the same
2: no, fair, fair, fair question. It's true that the, the business habits are, are, are quite different, especially like the whole like socialization part, which I guess is much more prevalent in China than it is in Europe. Um, and also the speed at which things occur. I feel like in Europe, like the speed is very linear. But in China, it's very valuable. You may have two months when nothing happens and then two days where suddenly like things like you have to do a lot and, and everything will happen within those two days. Um. So so yeah, that, that was a bit different. But then that being said, it's also the first jobs we ever had. So we didn't have like much sort of like preconceptions as to what should be like ways of, of doing business. Um. And, and maybe like, you know, we were like what, 22, 21 when we started that brand. We also thought it was somewhat a bit more fun like oh you you would go to all those places and have dinners with all those people and then drink and i don't know i was like uh, 21 years old i was it was yeah really adventurous or very 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 different from like friends where i'm from so yeah there was this, this fun aspect to it um, in addition of the, the lack of preconceptions um so no it was it was okay um but, but recently we went back actually to to mainland china so actually i was there last week uh and we visited some of the suppliers and and, and now it felt a bit different, like to do all those dinners where you have to drink a lot and like always like by Joe, like a, every day. I don't know. Okay. No, 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 I feel like, OK, it's, it's a bit hard, like it's it's a bit heavy. But I, as a, just like 21, 22, like I was like, yeah, it's OK. It's
1: yeah, But I think I think one thing yeah. um, that you're missing as well, Robin, is you're doing your co-founder a big disservice, you know, Wilfred, because he speaks pretty much flawless uh, Beijing-accented Pudonghua right mm-hmm. and uh you know i think that's a great advantage when people look at him and he's come when he speaks english he's just perfectly almost received pronunciation british accent and he can just switch like that into pretty much perfect beijing accented uh, uh you know a lot of the people you are working with love that i mean i know he's got a huge following on weibo as well because he's, he's not a bad looking fella but uh <laughs> you know, I know you leveraged that to sell the watches, but um, <laughs> you had a great you know partner in that. How no, well? no, for, for for sure. I
2: think Wilfried was extremely complimentary in that because all he does, I absolutely, cannot do. I mean, my my, my Chinese really sucks. Where uh, I see this, almost perfect. Um, as you said, like he has quite some following because he did a lot of like uh, reality TV shows in China. I think it was like yeah. kind of like Hubei Hubei TV maybe. Uh, so back to
1: the show or something or something like no, that. no 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 yeah, no no
2: no don't, don't send say this that to us. Don't say yeah, that. He, we'll we kick him. Um, no, it, it's a show about like foreigners who talk about kind of like daily life topics, but in in Chinese. So they I don't know they discuss things like in their countries or they discuss the news. Or but he did that for like what two years. Um. So he had did like a few hundred thousand followers on, on weibo um mostly female mostly female and mostly yeah. like in between the age of like 14 to 16 uh, so not a great customer base um but but once 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 he was recognized and i think it was in Macau airport and uh i will i don't know why we didn't have cash with us and my card got blocked because uh for whatever reasons and like the, the fan was like oh i'm gonna pay for a cab for you so that kind of like saved us on that day so thank you to the uh, to the tv show um yeah and why fame. is he
3: not on this podcast today <laughs> i want to see uh, what it's like uh, um, but i'm honestly a little bit more surprised that you being like white in china that they weren't like hey can i take a picture with you because <laughs> this was the thing like they would love to take pictures with like white people yeah
2: that was I don't um, think I'm good. I'm yeah. good. Good enough looking for for that, but it would happen with <laughs> Wilfried. So yeah, That's the division of responsibilities.
3: Uh, yes. Okay, I wanted to ask. Um, since you're talking about working uh, with these like Chinese suppliers and so on, how did you guys find the Master Cheng? Like, how did yeah. you find? Because there's only one. Like, supposedly, only one guy who can do this, yeah. right? There,
2: there, there is only one. Uh, there, there is yeah. only one. Um, so, so, initially, we wanted to do like CNC guilloche because we had no idea actually anyone could do that in, in China. And, uh, but we wouldn't find anyone actually who's able to do like good CNC guilloche. Like, most of the suppliers just do stamping and that we were not really interested in. And then, like, so we have this friend in Beijing called like uh, Chong Wei, uh, David Chong, who's like very much into like the arts and crafts world. So we Mm -hmm. asked him about CNC Giyoshe, and then he came back to us and he was like, oh, you know, CNC Giyoshe, like, really sucks. Uh, The only real thing is, like, the real, like, rose and, like, handmade Giyoshe. And Mm -hmm. he was like, oh, I I know someone who can do it in Mainland China, but he will never work with you guys and so we were a bit curious we're like oh can you give us the contact and we insisted insisted eventually he put us in touch and that's how we we met mr cheng um mm-hmm. who then was was happy to work with us and who i hope is, is still happy i mean i guess he's uh, given all the baijiu he drank uh to, to work, uh to work with us yeah <laughs> together we drank it together like yeah. uh yeah. No, no, no.
3: but is this master cheng not going to train anyone under him
2: he is, he is, he is. So actually, that's that's one of the, the the big things he's doing those days. Um. So he had like one apprentice who he had with for like seven years, and this mm-hmm. one became like a master in his full right. And there's another one who was there for five years, also became a master. And mm-hmm. now that like he has a much like bigger like stream of others um most i mean ourselves uh he was able to build like more engine. so he's Mm -hmm. able to to train more people and actually he gives classes in a vocational training college uh in sydney uh, that's near Zhengzhou. um Mm -hmm. so so the hope is that yeah he can i mean that's also his dream you know like initially he's like this Odd person doing that as like a yeah. standalone, like a one-off. But what he yes. wants to do is actually to okay. to to build the scene for that in in China. So yeah, train more people and and make it something. Uh, okay. Not just a, a weird story.
1: Okay. Okay. So you had a good success with that first watch, and then if we refer back to that time in the Puli Hotel, I remember you know me and you had some pretty candid talks after the event. Um, about the future of the brand and there were some difficult times and kind of times where I guess you didn't even know what was going to happen like what actually did happen after that uh that episode or that period within the brand between then and you know your latest release
2: yeah actually a, a lot happened and that's why I said like maybe the blogger like wasn't that wrong. I mean it, it was a bit of a harsh way to deliver it. But so so I we, we tried to launch the brand in mainland China and I think that was like a, a pretty big mistake uh because of like a lot of factors, but mostly uh, we didn't realize that a lot of Chinese customers would have a bias for like Western goods over like a certain price tag, which was fairly low back then. And secondly, that the cost of marketing was super high. So you needed to pay a lot for visibility and conversions was not really good. And you didn't have like the sort of fine targeting that you may have outside of China, you know, with with Mita and and whatnot. Um, We also underestimated the importance of retail and we sort of had this very European view you know, like, like in Paris or, uh, or in the UK, where like 80% of the demand is in one city and you just need to address one city to cover one market. I think in, in China is quite different. It's like, if you want to, to really cover well the country, what well, you we need to, to address at least like seven cities. Uh, so, so yes, so that led us in a sort of like fairly tough, uh, position. And, uh, at some point, like, I think like cash wise, we, we just like didn't have enough. So we decided to like, uh, pay all our suppliers and sort of like call it a day. Um, I, I, I therefore had the, the 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 unpleasantness of having to to find a job if I didn't want to go back to to mom's and dad. Uh, so very quickly I found a job in Paris, uh, which was a bit unrelated to what I was doing before with the watches. So I was working in a small PE fund um, that I was investing in sort of like premium premium consumer goods and 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 services. And uh, Wilfried went to to Singapore like to to start to start something new. But during that period of time, actually, uh, we kind of like took some distance. Uh, we reflected a bit about what it is that we want to do, what it is that we want to really achieve with that brand. And eventually that's when we decided that, okay, like maybe we should do products are uh, a bit more like unrestrained, like, cause what, one of the things with SportsCellate.dc, the first series is that we were convinced that there was a hard cap on what people could pay for this kind of watch. So we were like oh it needs to be like below like 700 us otherwise no one is gonna purchase uh so also the the product sort of suffered as a result you know i mean you have like only a a limited budget to to make the watch given that like target like retail price um but with perception we decided to take another approach like let's just try to make a really cool watch and we'll see afterwards like how much it costs um and, and it was a bit tough because I think, like, back then, neither Wilfried nor myself would be the customer for that watch. So we had a really hard time seeing, okay, who is going to buy that? Like, we're like, not us. So who is it? And we, we didn't really know. Um, but, yeah, then we launched it in, in 2022, April, and the traction was much better. And as afterwards, I just left the, the small fund and I, I focused back fully on, on the
3: telephone. That's what happened. Yeah.
1: So I've got a few questions from that. Which is, I remember back at that time, one thing you didn't really know was who was actually your target market. You still hadn't you know you had sold these watches, but you still weren't clear on what you're gonna try and achieve with it and who you were you targeting. And also you had this idea of the brand becoming bigger than just watches. Like you were thinking yeah. it was gonna go more lifestyle, it become like a potential, like a muji thing, you know, uh like a Chinese lifestyle brand. So I haven't really spoken to you about it since then you must know more about your target market now who is your like would you say is your target market and you know are you staying firmly focused within watches
2: yeah so so it's true we had this plan of like kind of like expanding into quote unquote like hsn verticals because we i think the reading that we had back then was that the market opportunity was around like premium, like Chinese goods uh, with like a Chinese identity. And we said, yeah, there's no one doing that. So so why not? And we could see all those like, uh, sort of like macro trends pointing towards maybe in the future, more, more acceptance for that, both in China and outside of China. Our model for, for this kind of expansion was a French company, like a French Japanese company called like Maison Kitsune, you know, which started as a record label and then moved into fashion and then cafe and then like f and then hospitality, but with kind of like the same concept at the core. So we thought we could replicate and and, and, and grow that way. Um as for the, the the target customer, I think back then we were touching upon some of them, but like not 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 really. Uh, n- not really fully I, I-, I think now our target customers are more like watch collectors and the established watch collectors and the-, the driver why they come to our watches I feel is because okay they already have like all those like maybe more, more, more common sort of like models or brands already have some some Rolex and APs and, and Pateks. Uh, and then they, they want like something that they haven't really seen before. They, they want some some novelty, some something that that is unique, uh, maybe with a strong stance and a strong storytelling and, and something like really, really differentiated. And I feel that's the same reason why they buy our watches, why they buy maybe some Ming watches or Corona or Nardane, you know, like very like... Uh, differentiated strong on storytelling um definitely not not similar to others and that's the driver why they came i feel back then we had some of those customers but the execution of the product was limited given like the the target retail price we had so i feel like for a lot of them those kind of establishment collectors it was kind of like too too lacking and maybe a bit too cheap to to be interesting and we were also touching like Kind of value value driven like discount driven like people who would come to our products because they would be like oh you know it's kind of the cheapest like porcelain dial i've ever seen in my whole life Um but those people would be actually really hard to have because like for them like 700 us was really a stretch so you would need like a lot of convincing and back and forth and 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 yeah so we were in this kind of like awkward position where those like established collectors would find the concept interesting but the execution too cheap and those value buyers would be like mm, that's interesting but that's too expensive and now we've moved towards like being more like a bit more expensive uh and and therefore appealing more to that segment of like established watch collector who are like oh I, I want something i've never seen and this is cool and oh it's really and this is like premium like made of all steel and the movement is like super thin. that's interesting and, and yes." Yeah.
3: Uh, can I just... I can't get this out of my head, so I can't move on with this podcast until I just clear this thing. <laughs> did you say, like, you went to Warwick? Like, yes, in the yeah, I okay, yeah, yeah, I did. Okay, well, because I did as well, but it's just like, no really? way. Hey, that's really good, because, like, I feel like in my class in Warwick, there's not a single one person that actually left and did something. <laughs> like, only one person. Wow. And, it, I'm so and in business class... I know... Did you study business? Yes, or, like, like all the French okay, people... So, Okay. So in business class, I remember this so vividly because the classes are not that big. And then um, there was one day, one of the teachers said, who is going to make it into the future? And (laughs) I looked around, no one raised up the hand. And then I turned around and I realized in this whole class, only one guy went like this. Okay. And I was like, okay, only one guy thinks he's going to make it in life. And then it turns out, yeah, this is like, the son of the mayor of uh, Kuala Lumpur, like Malaysia. So of course, right? <laughs> and I was like, wow, this is like motivate, like very inspiring to be in a class where nobody thinks they're going to achieve <laughs> anything.
2: <laughs> but, but but did you raise your hands?
3: <laughs> no, I was just like, wow, <laughs> like this is nice. <laughs> um, well, then now it's nice. Like now I know somebody that did something from the business. Wow, t- t-
1: t- thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
2: I yeah.
3: say, like
1: what, what what years were you both at Warwick?
3: I... I graduated 2010.
1: Oh, but not that far. I I
2: started yeah. 2013.
3: Okay, okay. For three years
2: after you left. Yeah.
3: Um. Yeah. Okay. Ah. But um, actually, that was not my question. <laughs> my question's more like talking about your end customer and who you think will um be your end customer. I know you did a collaboration w- with with RiskCheck. Uh Risk Check. Mm-hmm. Um, so did that have anything to do with? who you think the target audience is and who will buy your watch like what was the concept mm-hmm. idea, everything
2: a, 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 a bit um but also i saw that risk check audience is maybe like it's it, it, at least was and now i don't know but what was quite different from the audience we had and was an audience that was quite interested in into like getting in um because they have like sort of established watch collectors, but also like younger, younger demographics. And Mm -hmm. uh, if I were looking at people who are purchasing my watches, I could see them, okay, like 35 to 55. We do have a lot of people, but like those sort of younger collectors for reasons that I didn't understand, we wouldn't really like be able to, to capture their attention. So I was like, mm, maybe there's also an opportunity over there um, because it does demographics but not super present. Um, but also I feel like we check it again, like it happens super organically because, y- you know, like, um, when we were still like in Hong Kong, like with the, the first series and whatnot, so we had a, a tiny office in Shanghain. And uh, mm-hmm. at some point, we had an, an intern like who who was uh, who is like a, a good friend, like from a uh, uni friend. And uh, his name is Lucas, and he's like a big watch collector as well. And uh, and and then he became like very good friend with uh with, with, with Austin. So then is, uh, is a few this years after Ape Lucas,
3: mm-hmm. uh, the the NFT, and he no, has no, no 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 okay. No, it's it's not this one, Okay. Okay. at
2: least I don't think so. But but anyway, then a few years after, I think he kind of like mentioned the brand to Austin and then Austin reached out being like, oh, we should maybe do something together. And that was even before we released the Perception. So I was like, okay, that that would be really cool. And Mm -hmm. the Lucas Connection helped. And uh, and also I like that they were very like, I don't know, kind of like we're focusing on like making kind of a, a next generation of like Chinese watchmaking but from the supply point of view. And in the mission they are like about like making maybe the next generation of collectors or from the demand point of view. So I feel also mm-hmm. that there's some resonance to that. And I like the vision and, and we got along well, so yeah. But um, also a lot of it was, didn't think too much. I so thought that's mm-hmm. cool um so so why not but i mean I, I would do it again it was really a great really great collab and i uh, had a good time they were all very nice and did super well brought us a lot so in terms yeah. of disability and whatnot
3: so, so yeah cool very cool so
1: you know you uh you moved away back from like away from hong kong and back to paris right and like mm-hmm. you said you went and found a job that you weren't very interested in I think a lot of people would have just packed it in and said, oh, you know, it was a good experience and everything. I don't want to go back to that. You know, I'm 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 away from Asia now. I'm in Paris. I'm having great baguettes and pâté and you know great croissants. I don't need that in my life. And I'm really stable. And by the way, what were your parents thinking about all of this? You know, oh,
2: they,
1: <laughs> they, 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 they were not
2: like a, a huge fan of the whole unfolding. Um, my, my parents are quite risk averse, uh, I would tend to say. Um. So when I told them, like, hey, I'm, I'm not going to work for this consulting company, but instead, like, gonna go to Hong Kong, launch a very weird and random watch brand, they were a bit like, n- not so happy about it. But they were like, why not? I mean, if you have cash, why not? Uh. But then, yeah, well, when I came back, it was a bit like, I mean, they, they are nice and fair. They are not gonna be like, oh, I told you so. But I could feel that. Yeah, they were not so happy about the unfoldings and they could see okay, all my friends who had graduated were already like associates and whatnot in, in those banks and, and making this amount and kind of like getting stable with their life and buying flats and, and doing those stuff. And so like, okay, what, what is what is Robin gonna be gonna be doing? Like uh he has not much experience and he starts from from the beginning and yes, yeah, so, so they were not huge fan of that. Um not n- not big fans, no
1: okay so are they big fans now (laughs) a
2: a bit more but you know when i told them that i would go back to the watch (laughs) brand like my my dad was really pissed uh he i i I remember like because my parents live in marseille they don't live in paris so they they had come to paris to to visit me like one weekend and and i could sense that my dad was really tense and stressed uh (laughs) but i hadn't told him anything and, and then at some point he I don't know, he wanted to take a nap. So he went back to his hotel and I just went around with my mom. And then my mom told me, like, yeah, he's super, super stressed. He has no idea what you're doing. Like, uh, listen, dad, like, are you sure you want to do that? And even my mom was stressed. And and then, like, I had this kind of a fight with my dad. Where I was like, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. Um, and, yeah, and we both like, yelled. And, and, yeah, that was not super pleasant. But, um, yeah, then I still did it. And now he's more of a fan. And, and actually, like, so we we were in Singapore, like, because my sister, like, studies in Singapore. So, and Ace of August is my dad's birthday. So, for his birthday, we were in Singapore. And, and and some people recognized me in the street. Like, it's the first time it ever happened. But there were Whoa. some people who were like, Oh, are you Robin from a One? And my dad was like, Very, like, wow, it's, it's the next step, <laughs> you know? Like, uh, uh, And I feel now the, the attitude has shifted a bit it's, it's, since I've been recognized in a fair price. That's so funny. Uh, in Chinatown, like. Uh, yeah. That's so how much Chinese. did you pay them, Robin?
3: Yeah, I was like, let us know how next time you when them? your dad's coming, and we'll yeah. do it. <laughs> like...
1: Yeah, wow. He's if Long Long and Jacqueline went up, right? I'm <laughs> um, trust me, it would be ten times more impressive than it was just me. You know what I mean? Like, if Long Long comes, are you Robin from Atelier and yeah, your dad's can I get gonna be your like,
3: signature? <laughs> like,
1: put yeah, you um... a cab? But <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah well that's cool. you know i think you're very resilient and like i said the way you took that criticism and it wasn't the first time i've seen you take that kind of criticism and the way you respond right i i really think that's a very strong trait of yours like to keep calm in that kind of very emotional kind of uh situation when you're you know yourself you yourself are you know under a lot of pressure and still be able to assimilate that as feedback and and actually then keep going forward i have, I do admire you uh for that um but you know knowing what you know now robin like five years in more i'd say what would you have told yourself back when you started oh i, I would have told myself like if you start like very practical uh first one
2: is don't make the first series a limited edition that's I, just because I was too afraid and I was thinking like, oh, 500 pieces is a lot. No one's going to buy them. So I'm going to put limited edition so that maybe people are going to buy. I think that was a stupid idea because eventually we reached a situation where we had no watches to sell because the perception wasn't ready and the porcelain in Odyssey were like also out. So we, we missed on a lot of revenues. Um, the, the second one is like maybe to stop thinking about some boundaries that did not exist. I feel like a lot of the mistakes that i did were because i was somewhat convinced that some stuff were done in a certain way but there was no no sort of tangible evidence for that it was more like a kind of gut feeling i was like oh yeah people cannot buy that around uh, above like 700 us it's it's a well known fact and and then i wouldn't question it too much and and, and and yeah, that proves a this. And a few times too, uh, I mean, even with Wolffried and, and it's something we, we reflected on like a, when we were both in China is actually we realized that there's so many things we we just don't know, and we should just not assume that we know and, and put some boundaries and kind of abide by, by those boundaries. So so that that's the second one. Um, and the third one would, I don't know, to to do a bit more re- research. Uh, I feel like launching in mainland China was uh, an, an absolutely shitty idea. Uh, we, we didn't do research. Like, you, you know how it happened? It's like, because uh, Wilfred Shianshi is it, like from uh, Dongbei. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And he went back to her place for Chinese New Year. And then he was in a train station and he called me and he was like, you won't imagine like this tiny city, the train station. There's so many people. And then he said, "If we cannot sell like 500 watches, like it's, it, it, I mean, it's impossible. Like we, we, we do not sell like 500 watches in mainland China. Look at all the people." And then I was like, "Yeah, you're right. Like so many people, that there, there must be someone who, who's gonna buy them." And and that's just like the sole reason why we went to launching in the into mainland China is just because like he, he was in this in China and he called me and he's like, "Robin, there's so many people. Let's sell them there." And no one, no, none of us ever questioned the thing. We were like. <laughs> Okay, okay let's do it and, and that, that proved like oh, a God. stupid stupid mistake um so yeah re- research things a, a bit
1: more uh yeah i would say this is a good like uh, lesson yeah. <laughs> okay right my last question of this main interview robin is um building a brand you know is very different to just making a good watch right to you what is the most important pillar in brand building Uh, Oh, maybe I'm gonna say something so cheesy, but
2: I I, I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) Anyone? (laughs) Uh, I know. There's something I really want to to like achieve, but I'm not sure how it is feasible. But it's to kind of like always surprise people, you know. Like, and I feel like if every one of the watches I release like are always surprising, like not not something that people expect. The, then maybe like the, the brand will be successful because I look at many brands like sometimes, okay, they, they release one, their they first watch and it's cool and it's unique and it's fresh, but, but then it starts becoming a bit like reheated and derivative and, and, and it gets boring. And I think that's, I think personally that that's when I lose interest. but um, so, so to me, like really the, the core thing I should be striving for is to always like really something that, that people kind of do not expect, do not know exist and does not look like what they, they know. Um, so I feel, yeah, when we, yeah, when we release like the, the Giyoshi layer, people had no idea that there was someone doing Giyoshi in China and that created like a bit of surprise and, and, and yeah, so that's kind of the, the feeling I want to, to replicate, um, how, I, I, I don't know, I need to find like more new stuff that we did not suspect, but, but yeah, that, that would be my, make pillar.
1: Always. Surprise. Well, best of luck with that. And, uh, Thank you for being such a good sport on the main interview and answering the question so candidly, you know, I think a lot, you win a lot of fans there.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for all the questions.
1: So now, right, you get to ask us some questions with the reverse round. So what would you like to ask? Yeah, actually, I'd like
2: uh, Jacqueline to, to ask you a question because I've i been following your, your watch Instagram account for, for quite some time. And uh, I, I see your collection growing and I was particularly impressed with the piece unique, like Voutilainen. I thought it's it's really, really cool. But my question to you is, how do you sort of like keep and sustain the interest? Because um, maybe my, my view is kind of like biased and flawed, but I feel like, okay, a piece unique is is almost like this kind of zenith of the game you know like once you you're there i mean what, what other watches can you you find and can you get and how, how do you stay interested
0: uh thank you so much first of all um for me um when i was getting interested into independent watchmaking there were the kind of the big three that you'd look at and and kari being one of them so i i knew that being able to um commission a piece from him would mean ultimately a lot, a lot for me. Um, So I, I mean, I think these two kind of know my personality now. I think I was, more like risk taking during COVID when I was like locked in my home alone and like had nothing to do uh, than I am now. Um, I think if I were presented with the same opportunity now, I think I would maybe hesitate a little bit more because there are so many other brands and so many selections out there that you don't really know how your taste might change or evolve. But when I get into something I kind of just become obsessive with it and so when I saw that one particular model um that Kari was doing because I've been familiar with his work um but it was it wasn't until I saw that particular retrograde model did I really oh like shock myself and really I sat down and was like okay I'm gonna commit to this um so so when, yeah, it's it's a good question. It's kind of like what what do I what do I go from here? I think, um, I mean for me, I I'm always interested in in vintage watches. Like that's that's where it started. Um, it's just right now it's so difficult to find a high quality vintage, and I don't want to find something, um, just to own just to say I own it and then it being like, um, inferior quality. So, um, for me going forward, I might just stay very, very patient with vintage while exploring kind of, uh, create, uh, creative projects with different independent watchmakers. And there are, I feel like everybody is aware that independent watchmaking is super, super hot right now. Um, so there's a lot of people on the rise and a lot of young talent as well. Um, so I, I think just being in tune with that community and seeing what what speaks to you the most. But um yeah, with with that watch, it's uh it means a lot to me because it's the first one that I really like commissioned um from, from the beginning. And um I'm the the one takeaway is i think i'm very lucky that i'm not tired of the design because um it took well now it's i i from what i heard it's taking longer but when i was commissioning i was like two years that's such a long time like you don't even mm-hmm. know what the world is going to be like and then it ended up taking longer than two years so almost three years And uh, you don't really get update shots or or photos. I visited his uh, atelier one time and I saw the unfinished dial, no case, no movement, no nothing. So there's always that factor of um mysteriousness you're not you're not entirely sure if you're going to be happy with the result or uh, it's going to look exactly how you envisioned it, right? I think all of us will understand that factor. Um so w- when I did receive it, I think I was just like Ooh, like okay. I I I know he what he does really well. Um, and and you trust in him and his team, but being me, like I always worry a little bit. Uh, so I'm I'm happy that I wasn't like completely tired of my design, and uh, I hope I will not get tired of of my design. Um, but you never know, right? So mm. I might just in the future just like completely change my taste and focus on Grand Seiko or something. <laughs> sorry that's an inside Guys, she
3: said it yeah she said it
0: not us that's an inside yeah. joke we have here
1: whoa, whoa, whoa. why are you laughing? Whoa, whoa. i don't think whoa, that's whoa. very funny yeah yeah
0: it's
1: what's really the meaning of that all, right, all right uh all right.
0: so yeah uh robin if you don't know so like we uh a lot of people have trashed us for not uh speaking well about grand seiko even though like we know full on well what grand seiko does well Um, So a lot of people like trash us for not speaking enough about Grand Seiko. Um, That's why.
1: Yeah, Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah.
2: What's your second Um,
1: question, Robin?
2: Yes, I have one for you, uh, Daniel. Um, Because you recently or or sort of recently like moved to the the watch industry. And Mm -hmm. and I'm very curious because, you know, I I don't know. In my case, I, I kind of started with it. And then going back to it was easy because that was the thing I was the, the most used to and being an entrepreneur was the thing I was the most used to. But in your case, when you already had a professional career, like, I don't know, for me, it's just hard to understand or I'm curious about, like, how how can you, like, kind of, like, pull the trigger and, and move from one thing to another? Like, what, what goes in your head and what kind of, like, makes you take the jump?
1: I think um, what it is is that, You just can't continue in what you're doing. That's why you have to change. You know, if it's a choice, you're still going to go probably towards security. But when you just can't do it anymore, you don't have a choice. You know, I was like miserable, you know, with my life. Um, And I, I, it was like miserable for so many reasons, you know, like for people, like people must know by now that I used to be a dentist and uh the idea of just being in a room like for your whole career and seeing the world through people that were coming in as your patients was it just like it was just part of a job that i had never seen when i decided to be a dentist you know like Mm -hmm. i was thinking about basically stuff that your parents were thinking about right steady job great working hours good money but then when you actually do it it was just like very, very different. And uh
0: did you never think then, about how many people you're helping? <laughs> like people. Yeah. Okay. No, actually, that's you? a
1: very, that's a very good point you bring up, Jack. Because you go into dentistry, and part of it, I did want to help people. Yeah. But then I've quickly realized that to be to be really successful, yeah, or make it in dentistry, you only help the wealthy.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You don't help the masses. You know because. You know, you, the, the wealth of people can charge. So it's like, well, I came in this to help people, but yeah, I am helping people, but I'm only helping the people that, to be honest, a lot of the time don't need the help. You yeah. know? Uh, so that was a bit not, didn't sit that well with me as well. So many factors. What many, about many
3: the factors. nurse that you worked with? <laughs> I worked
1: with many nurses, right? Ooh. And, uh, honestly you spend more time with that nurse than you do more than you like your wife more than any person alive uh it's tough it's tough <laughs> it's tough I'll just leave it at that it's tough
0: they should have yeah, I used to, your I own used nurse. to leave yeah, exactly. well you see
1: I was the only guy in the practice because all so the other two the other dentists were like female as well and uh you know, I, if you include the nurses, I think there were about 14 people and I was the only guy. Whoa. And I just couldn't hack lunch. <laughs> lunch was just like, to be fair, you know, ha- new hairstyles, <laughs> Um, keeping track with what to say to, to the right person about their new hairstyle, thinking about what to say appropriate about what their costume would be for their weekend going out, you know, Making track of like what was new about their outfit or something they changed. Being track on like, you know, making sure that I wasn't making inappropriate comments about their food, you know, like it's a different world, I'll tell you, you know, when you work in a female-dominated arena. And uh, so for the most of the time, I just left that environment. I literally basically came in a minute before the first patient, straight out, yeah, before you even noticed me for lunch took a two-hour lunch came back again a minute before and then out and i was working like two uh i had three day basic three days off a week as well so i wasn't even working like the full week uh so it does kind of tell you how much i disliked it yeah Yeah. so to many people yeah looking back it would be like oh you know you gave up you know dentistry five years you know but I always say to them, like, yeah, you think it's a great job because, like, you think about the money. Yeah, so you think it's a great job. But, you know, I could slip that on the head. And if, if money is the only thing, you know, a lot of, like, escorts in China, as you know, Robin, not from experience, of course, but as you know, <laughs> yeah, Gosh. Make, 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 a, make a lot of money, <laughs> hey, you know. It doesn't mean it's a great job, right? <laughs> Maybe I should ask Wilfrid. Okay, no, that, that's very harsh. That's
2: very harsh.
3: <laughs>
1: Yeah, so uh, yeah, sorry for my long-winded answer, but a little bit candid there. That's a very honest answer. Yeah.
0: No, it should have been like right back at you. I should I should ask you, like, how many yeah. side jobs you've got? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right.
1: So and... are we done, Robin? Or do you have another oh, question? Ma- ma- maybe I have a, a
2: question for, for, for Long. Uh Is because, so, so, so you, you, you don't work in, in the watch industry, but you, you do the, this, this podcast and i'm wondering like do you sort of like ever like i mean how, how do you feel and do you ever like feel like that you want to to work in the watch industry or are you sort of happy to have this side thing of yours uh where you have the podcast and then you you have your, your day job do you feel a bit like daniel who who maybe could see like also like the another another realm and 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 want to go there or i mean how
3: uh, I, I definitely work? I'm really clear about this. I will never work in the watch industry. Like, uh, I think unless we joked about this before, in ideal world. I think, Jacqueline, you said the same. We will work in the paddock museum, but like not client like you don't meet anyone. You're just like dusting the watches and you're just like cleaning and like curating alone. So that kind of in that kind of world. Yeah, I would work in the watch industry. But um, there was a time in my life I worked at an art gallery because I thought I was I loved art and I, I thought, whoa, like I'm doing my dream job. And then I realized within a week, like I just can't mix what I like and with work. Because everything suddenly becomes really unromantic. You know, the prices, you know, the way things are handled, you know, all the details. And it just kills the whole, like, fantasy. I mean, a lot about watches is the fact that you're spending, like, illogical money, right? Stuff that doesn't make sense. And it's a, there's a lot of romance and story behind it. So I just don't want to kill it for me. So I just want to have, like, work is work. And then this is a space for me to just talk <laughs> talk rubbish. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, on that on that note yeah. it's been it's been a great journey with like both of you guys on this podcast you know yeah. like uh, like i just look back at the last two years we've, we've done a lot actually and we've met, met some amazing collectors had great conversations and linked with people we never actually thought we would have ever linked with so yeah yeah it's been really fun but uh the table's now turn back to you robin as we go on to the pump push around right what so is that gonna, it's a, just a quick fire round of just okay, random okay, questions, okay. right? So don't worry, keep your pants on. Um, like, <laughs> it like, I'm just going to hit the French, like Hong Kong kind of, you know, vibe here. So as a Parisian, which is more important, the wine or the cheese?
2: Um, the, the wine, always the alcohol.
1: Okay. One thing that you miss from Asia when you're in Paris?
2: Uh, the Food, I guess uh the, the watches uh, the food and the watches yeah
1: okay one thing that you miss from paris when you go to asia my family my parents okay uh you spent some time in in hong kong quite a bit of time who does the best french food in hong kong uh... honestly i don't have a lot of good memories of french food in hong kong
2: like i remember there was a chicken place in shangguan that that was open for a very short while that was good and then back then i think i was too broke to go to the nice like caprice and and those those places so
1: I, i would say like my french food experience is not so good in hong kong okay next one uh one thing that annoys you about paris
2: oh it's, it's very oh yeah it's very beige like it's all, all all looks the same like the architecture is very uniform and it's like this beige tone like everywhere it's very very beige i really don't like that
1: mm. okay right uh one thing that annoys you about hong kong
2: mm, I, I feel being ripped off at every corner like <laughs> even when i buy like a bottle of water i feel like someone is ripping me off <laughs>
3: yeah facts. Yes. I, I yeah, I
2: had this it's, it's concept the landlord's, about the,
1: the
3: landlords
2: <laughs> ripping you off I, I had this concept you know you know like you have the welfare states, but I thought maybe there's something like the repo state and I was <laughs> like Hong Kong is a is a good like uh embodiment of,
1: of that um <laughs> I, I don't know I feel every time I was ripped off like uh, anyway right next one what are actually the similarities between the two cities Hong Kong and Paris Oh, gosh.
2: Uh, I I would say the two of them tend to be like fairly busy, but in very different ways. But they are both like very busy. Uh, I feel like Hong Kong is very like rushed, but actually a lot happens and you have this kind of energy again it's not super cheesy uh and in paris too you have that like people are rushed to and, and a lot happens i mean at, at least for french standouts a lot happens maybe for like asian standards nothing happened but for, for, for our standards you, you have this kind of energy and, and vibe too so we would say that um and, and 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 the the prevalence of food like so, so so much food in hong kong so much food in paris uh yeah that's what we do too okay.
1: okay and the last one which is your favorite city in the world
2: Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, it's hard to say because, you know, you, you you don't know what you don't know. And sometimes, you know, stuff, but you don't know the whole extent of stuff. Um, but I would say, like, the city where I had the most enjoyable experience ever was uh, Beijing. Um, I, I thought it was like, I mean, from an expense point of view, it was really, really great. Uh, but also for just the city itself, I think it's very interesting that there's a lot happening. Um, The, the, the vibe is, 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 is very nice. Uh, I think the city is quite pretty. Like maybe not everyone likes brutalism, but I, at least I do. And I think you have this, this blend between like some very modern stuff, very heritage stuff, very avant-garde, very like concrete blocks. Um, It's getting more green too. So yeah, I would say I had the best time in Beijing.
1: Well... That ends the podcast. So thank you very much for coming on, Robin. For you listeners out there, I'm pretty sure you won't have to listen to this at 2.0 speed because Robin spoke very quickly and managed to fit in a lot (laughs) of stuff in there. So thank you again for coming on, Robin. How did you find it? Thank you so much, guys. Yeah, it was was very fun. Uh, thanks for for asking
2: all those great questions, and uh, I hope Wilfred won't won- won- won't be too mad about unveiling his kind of like secret past. Uh, but th- 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 thanks you know a know lot. No, we yeah, should do? A- yeah, we
1: usually ask for a mugshot of uh, the person that we interview. You should send us Wilfred because it probably will do better. <laughs>
3: uh, that, that, that that's harsh. That's harsh.
1: That's mean. Yeah. Think back to the blogger. There might be some truth in it. <laughs> yeah. yeah uh, uh. <laughs> Oh. all right Robin. i'll let, I'll let you right. go
0: as always thank you for listening to the waiting list podcast we hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have and if you have any questions comments or feedback feel free to reach out to us at the waiting list podcast on instagram or via our private accounts
1: we'll see you on the next one
0: bye, bye. bye.